Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from my nine-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a writer whose work has been seen in The Atlantic and The Paris Review, and the author of The Secret History of Food. Strange but true stories about the origins of everything we eat. Hello and welcome, Matt Siegel. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining me. According to your biography, Matt, you write, you have a dog named Waffles, and you consult with brands in the food and beverage industries. What in the hell, pray tell, does that mean? Yeah, um... You know that that's uh, an older an older bio. I actually I haven't uh, been doing that as much since I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I, I was a former English professor, and you know, for the past fifteen or so years, have been uh, consulting on the side in terms of uh, helping brands and, and individuals with their content. And you know, the more I've done it, the more I've been able to uh, only do it for causes I'm passionate about, right? Um, so that that's really meant the last few years, it's mostly uh, been food and beverage companies, just, uh, you know, thinking about their mission and mission statements and how they uh, connect with the world and put themselves out there. So branding and particularly stuff of the um, ethical variety is what, I'm, is what I'm getting? I hope so. I mean, yeah. I, I try- uh, It's tricky. There's a lot of brands I wouldn't, I wouldn't work with. They couldn't pay me enough. Um, but there's a lot of great brands out there. So, you know, I try and connect with as many as I can when I have the time. That sounds like decent and noble work that you're doing, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about this book, which is fascinating. And I reached out to you directly. I read, I heard about it and I read the little, whatever you're allowed to read for free on Amazon. And immediately I was like, okay, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. It is so ridiculously, and I mean that in a good way, chock full of information and, and fun information. The basic premise of this book, as I see it, everything you think you know about food is wrong. Everything that you think is normal to eat used to be considered weird and vice versa. Now, I'm exaggerating ever so slightly, but is that about right? Yeah, I think that, you know, look, I, I would have put that description on Amazon. <laughs> I think that works. <laughs> You know, I, I think, uh, you know, to add on to that, I think there's, I, I would say, I think there's a lot about food that we used to know, but it's been lost. And I think there's a lot about food that we think we know, but we really, we really don't know. Can you give me an example of that? <sighs> yeah. Um, I mean, just, you know, if we look at misinformation in general, um, so I, I really go back into nutrition hundreds of years ago and even just 200 years ago or 100 years ago, people used to think that potatoes caused syphilis, right? Um, they literally burned potatoes at the stake. They called them the devil's apples. Um, and now, of course, 
they're the most popular vegetable in America, owing primarily to their use as French fries, right? And so it's easy to look back and say, man, these idiots, right? They knew nothing. They thought potatoes, our favorite vegetable in America, caused syphilis and came from the devil. You know, but if, if you look at what's going on today, our top scientists and nutritionists, they still can't agree on whether or not eggs are good for us, right? Um, you, you can get all, you know, books off the shelf from, from top uh, nutritionists. You can follow the studies. They can't agree whether eggs are good for us, whether coconut oil is good for us, plant-based versus meat-based. Um, so there's still a lot we don't know. We think, you know, in this age of information, in this age of, you know, so much technology and information is out there. We think we know everything, but we don't. And then just one more point, there's just so much, you know, like there's a lot that's been forgotten, right? Like the role, one thing I'm sure we'll talk about the role of ice cream during World War II. Like mm -hmm. that's something that's published in newspapers, you know, a few generations ago, but people forgot about it. Right. Yes, I do want to. I do want to get to that. It's still hard for me to understand, and I don't expect you to have an answer to things that are unanswerable about people who are no longer here to be questioned about these things. Now, good for you versus bad for you. That's one thing. Edible or poisonous? We're led to believe. Well, how do you know? The joke is always made. Who was the first person that ate an oyster? Well, somebody who was starving to death didn't have anything to lose. Now, this, as I say, this book is chock full of facts. There's. I went into this with one that I, I think you get into. I didn't get all the way through the book. I am led to believe that we associate, you know, what's more Italian than pasta with tomato sauce? Well, we know pasta, Marco Polo came from Asia. At least that's what I think I know. But tomatoes, I'm led to believe that as recently as like 150 years ago, Italians were convinced that tomatoes were poisonous. How could you be so wrong about something that somebody sooner or later starving could debunk? Yeah, I mean, you uh, it, it's a complicated issue, right? So yeah. you, you, you bring up a great point. It's so fun to think about like, man, who's the first person to try and eat that red berry or oysters, lobster? These are all good examples. And as you wisely pointed out, nine times out of 10, the answer is uh, starvation, right? Like, no, they didn't want to eat that thing, but they didn't want to starve either. They also ate, you know, dogs and boiled shoe leather, right? Um, there is another kind of comical reason is that there, there's also things we eat for bravado, right? If you, if you think about the way that uh, some uh, chili products and alcohol products are mentioned, it's, it's being cool, it's being macho, you know, can you take the heat, um, you know, things like high octane energy drinks and all that. So I think there's also an aspect historically you know, people turn to things uh, like chili peppers and certain foods sort of as a dare, right? And to, to peacock masculinity and say, hey, I'm tough, you know, mate with me. Um, in terms of misinformation, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's hard to understand. Um, but when you dig into it, there are, there are concessions you can make, right? So at one point, um, at one point, people thought basically all fruits and vegetables were poisonous. And part of the reason for that is they used to wash them in filthy, filthy water and eat them raw, right? Um, so yeah, if you take an apple that not itself isn't dangerous and you wash it in water that has dead animals and you know all sorts of things in it and you don't feel good afterwards, it's, uh, it's understandable 
why that could happen. But yeah, a lot of it's bananas. A lot of it sounds made up. Well, let's just start with, I mean, before we even get into the book, let's just start with, I think this is the book Jacket, where you pose the question, is Italian olive oil really Italian, or are we dipping our bread in lamp oil? What, may I ask you, what is the answer to that question? Oh, God. Uh, cross your fingers. Um, you know, the answer to that question is probably, probably, hopefully, your, uh, your Italian olive oil is actually Italian olive oil. Um, but yeah, so that's a whole nother layer, right? So, mm-hmm. oh, so you're talking about the modern day, the stuff that you might go down and buy at Trader Joe's. Yeah, yeah. yeah so no, I, I'm I'm not under the illusion that my because they literally sell at Trader Joe's. They have the they have the President's Reserve extra virgin olive oil. Is if we are to believe the the reigning prime minister of Italy, like Berlusconi, mm-hmm. handed over his private reserve at some point to whoever the, the prime minister is now. And we were able to get that for spending an extra two bucks on extra virgin olive oil at Trader Joe's. You're saying, so I know it's not always olive oil. You're saying it, it might be lamp oil. It might be worse. I mean, it, it, <laughs> uh, so there's a, a, a global uh, counterfeit ring uh, around olive oil. It's a huge industry. And you know, lamp oil, um, you know, lamp oil, you can have lamp oil made from olives that just aren't rated for human consumption, right? They're, they're like spoiled or they're just not rated for human consumption. They're rated only for lamp oil. But if some nefarious olive oil producer uh, wants to save some money, we, we, we might not be able to tell the difference. Um, that's, you know, that's not far, not the best case scenario, but it's not the worst case scenario. We've had huge issues of, uh, poisoning, like thousands of people being poisoned with fatalities from people passing off engine oil as olive oil. And, uh, you know, a lot of times it's not even, you know, a lot of times it's just, uh, you know, they take different oils like canola oil and they'll adulterate it with, uh, you know, basically dye it different colors. And they, you know, they do the same thing with honey. Um, It's a problem, but it's a problem that uh, thankfully, this is one of the things in the book that is not super secret, at least to uh, organizations like the USDA and FDA. So it's a known problem that a lot of resources worldwide are going to. And, uh, you know, if, if you're looking, you know, closely at the label, there are some things you can look for and buying in stores. We should be all right, but it's important to know about. So, okay. So if, if uh, careful consumers can be reasonably sure that they're not dipping their bread in, in motor oil, that's, that's a positive. Sure. And, and let's talk about how, let's talk about how ice cream helped defeat the Nazis. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, helped is the key word, but I certainly think it, it played a role. I think there's a lot mm-hmm. to document that. So, one thing I get into the book through a bunch of different chapters, the role of food in war just keeps coming up. Yes. Um, through the ages. I mean, you go all the way back to like caveman days and they were throwing, you know, beehives into caves, right, as projectiles. And, you know, you go to the Middle Evil Ages, they were, they were still throwing beehives off of, uh, you know, off of castle walls during If it ain't broke. Yeah. And, you know, boiling, uh, throwing hot cooking oil and then the role of poison in war is, has been huge and poisoning reservoirs. But, you know, for most of history, the, the big role of food in war strategically was the importance of feeding your soldiers. Uh, the idea that your, your soldiers can't march if they can't eat. Um, and that's a huge logistic 
problem even today, feeding you know massive amounts of people overseas a lot of the time, food can spoil. And you know you can think about how difficult that would have been hundreds or thousands of years ago. Anyway, the, for most of history, the role of food in war was to feed your soldiers. It was totally caloric. But during World War II, the United States, uh, they took a, a big shift and they said, you know what, we're not just going to worry about calories. We're not going to ration everything and you know, deprive our soldiers of the comforts of home. Uh, we want them, we want to worry about calories too, not just comfort. I'm sorry, comfort, not just calories. So they went to massive lengths during World War II to ship ice cream overseas and all over the world, air, land, and sea to, uh, to really increase the morale of our troops and remind them of what they were fighting for. And, you know, it, it had a huge difference. And really, it's become part of the military ever since. It's just so audacious. You know, there are satisfying treats that don't require constant freezing. Yeah, I mean, logistically... A chocolate um, chip cookie probably also reminds me of home, is all I'm saying. You know, it's funny. So chocolate was, you know, I don't want to give the illusion that it was only ice cream. I think yeah. ice cream was probably the biggest shift and, and took the biggest uh, amount of effort by far. Um, but yeah, so they also gave uh, our soldiers chocolate bars that were custom made. But that's the thing. It's, uh, they had to be custom made so they wouldn't melt in the jungle. Um, we're talking less about World War II here, but yeah, it's not that easy <laughs> to, to ship things. I mean, you need to, they need to work with uh, brands to prepare foods to be airdropped and uh, ex endure extreme temperatures and last forever. Um, let's talk about, uh, let me see, some of the other, there, there's just so much stuff. I kind of cut myself off at a certain point so that I'm in no risk whatsoever of, of spoiling your book, but uh, let me see, kind of picking randomly here. Um, the reasons why human beings, we, find the taste of vanilla comforting might make some people somewhat uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, it's a weird thing to think about. So there's a <laughs> lot of reasons we... Uh, there's a lot of reasons we crave certain foods and we develop comfort foods, right? There's physiological reasons, there's learned associations. So certainly part of our comfort from ice cream, if we didn't eat it uh, during you know, wartime, uh, comes from things like memories of childhood birthday parties and you know, summer vacations. But there's a lot of evidence that our, uh, our adult preferences for food go back a lot earlier, all the way to the womb. So, you know, a fetus actually ends up swallowing a lot of mother's amniotic fluid, and that amniotic fluid has absorbed a lot of flavors from her diet. Um, vanilla is one of the flavors that's been detected, detected there, along with, you know, pretty much every flavor out there. Um, and there's research that shows that exposure to those flavors, not just... Uh, in the womb, in the amniotic fluid, but also later during breastfeeding, really has an effect on our food preferences uh, well into adulthood. Right, up to and including cigarettes. If you have a taste for delicious, delicious cigarettes, it could be because you got your first, your <laughs> yeah. first taste from I'd, the nipple. Uh, it's interesting reading these studies where they talk about flavors that have been detected you know, basically by sniffing amniotic yeah. fluid. And, you know, you need to trust the noses of some of these participants. 
Um, but yes, yeah, cigarette smoke is uh, is one of the quote unquote flavors that has been picked up. And, you know, for some people, uh, for better or worse, probably worse, that that reminds them of home and of childhood. When did you get rolling downhill with this book? When did this go from being you're the guy who's got anecdotes about everything everybody's eating at a dinner party to you going, there's actually enough stuff here. I got 200 pages of this stuff. Yeah, it was it was a couple years ago. Um, I mean, I sold the book about two and a half years ago. And before that, I spent about two years, nights and weekends researching it. And I knew pretty early on, you know, I will say, as you note, Initially, it, it wasn't uh, a book idea. I used to be an English professor. Excuse me, I used to be an English professor. And uh, so naturally, I love research. And I also taught speed reading. And But I also love food. So I would really spend my nights and weekends, I would check out books by the duffel bag and, you know, dig into all this scientific research and old manuscripts and was just really curious. And I, I would go down all these rabbit holes and start reading about, you know, corn. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm reading about uh, the evolution of French bulldogs, right? And, and drawing weird connections there. Um, but it hit me pretty early that the history of food, and when I say history, that's inclusive of psychology, religion, all, you know, war, wartime strategy, it's consistently stranger than fiction. And, you know, we've never had more food writing, more food media than we have today, but no one seemed to be writing about the things that I was writing about. And I think I formed some new ideas there, uh, but I also think I uncovered some things that have been lost. And, you know, I talked uh, in the beginning about lost information. You know, I kept, I kept thinking in my research about Roswell, the Roswell uh, UFO incident. So in the 1940s, I think it was, Every paper in the country uh, published an article on the front page that said uh, we captured UFOs. It was in every paper, every major paper, every minor paper. And then the whole world forgot about it, really forgot about it until someone wrote a book. I think it was in the 1980s. And now it's this huge cultural phenomenon. And so I was shocked, not only by the stuff that I was finding, you know, that happened thousands of years ago, but man, I was shocked by some of the stuff I was finding in old issues of the New York Times. And, you know, that that's where I uh, started with a lot of the ice cream and war things. When you brought up corn, I thought you were going to um, allude to the link between, well, the possible link between corn and the ongoing mythology of vampires. Yeah, corn uh... <laughs> doesn't seem like a natural link. No, so I, I told you I was not afraid to go down weird, weird rabbit holes in this. And one of those, I wasn't expecting it either. When I started researching corn and when I was heavily researching corn, I did not expect to uh, talk about vampires. But it's interesting. So the short, short story is that corn is uh, it's a world staple that a huge portion of the world depends upon, whether they know it or not, because it's in everything from you know toothpaste to most things in the grocery store um but by itself it's an incomplete food source and so you know once it really when it first became a staple crop and people across the world realized like hey this is a cheap crop we can grow this and survive on this um the cultures who ate corn without properly supplementing their diet they tended to develop uh 
niacin deficiency or uh, what's known, what's now known as pellagra. But they didn't know that at the time. Um, now, what's interesting is the symptoms of pellagra, if you compare them with the reports of vampires, they, they tend to line up uh, almost exactly. So pellagra can cause things like pale and parchy skin, insomnia, um, reddening of the lips and tongue, which can look like blood, and even a, a rash on the neck, which can kind of look like a, a bite on the neck. Um, and, and also super, super aggression, right? And like hallucinations. Um, and what's interesting is if, if you look back and align the earliest reports of vampiric attacks, they tend to align almost exactly with what we now know were cases of pellagra across the world. So it sounds crazy, uh, but it's not that far-fetched to imagine that people who were writing about nighttime vampiric attacks were writing about people who were suffering from pellagra and uh, just kind of out of their skull, pale, uh, super aggressive with what looked like blood in their mouth and bite marks on their neck. Now, is this your original research, you connecting these two things, or, or are you repeating somebody else's hypothesis? Yeah, yeah I, I certainly wasn't the first person to uh, discover this. I, mm -hmm. uh, I drew some interesting uh, strings between uh, a, lot of, a lot of these, um, and you know, I like to think I shine some new light on it. But, you do. Uh, no, it's your it, it's your original hypothesis that the um, inventor of Kellogg's cereal may have been Jack the Ripper. That I uh, that I do <laughs> take credit for. Okay, let's let's break that down. Um, I am not the first person to to write about the history of Kellogg's. Um, no, there I was did. the motion picture, The Road to Wellville. People might remember I, on other shows that I do that some people listening to this would have heard. We've talked at some length about. What a, a deeply strange man. This the There's two original Kellogg's, but the yeah. original, original Kellogg. Very weird guy. Very, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> you know, this is one of the things, um, this is probably a little less secret if you're like a huge reader or huge foodie or, as you said, a movie fan. But I think it's still, you know, surprising. You yes. know, it's one of the things most people come up and talk to me about the most Today, cereal is known, I think more than any other food, maybe ice cream, uh, as being fun and sugary and exciting. I mean, it, it's uh, not only is it oftentimes half sugar, literally by weight, um, but it's got these crazy fun shapes for kids. It's got colorful boxes. It's got cartoon characters on the cover of the boxes. Um, you know, it, it's a... Uh, it's up there with ice cream. It's this childlike fun food. It even has free prizes and, and, uh, and uh, mazes on the back and games, right? But what would shock most people or a lot of people certainly is that it cold breakfast cereal was deliberately created to be bland and unexciting. So it was created in the 1800s by religious health reformers in the United States who to put it to put it health reformers and religious is putting it mildly. Yeah, I mean they were pretty they were pretty extreme, um, and they they really believed that sugar and spices were sinful and that uh, consuming these pleasures of the table or really indulging in any pleasures, you know really just led to a life of just temptation and sin and ultimately eternal damnation. So they wanted to create a way to quite literally break your fast 
um, without becoming a godless uh, hedonist. And so, you know, they, they created cereal to be this, this boring, bland way to just get calories into your system. And that went along with, you know, a whole regimen. So we're talking about Dr. John Harvey Kellogg here is the one who really pioneered a lot of this. Um, yeah, he was not a fan of, of pleasure uh, in food or away from the breakfast table. So he, he was, uh, had a lot of issues with sex, uh, a lot of issues with masturbation. I mean, frankly, cereal, he, he, his, his, probably his biggest motivation was to, he, he thought eating cereal would stop people from masturbating, to put it bluntly. Um, and if well, it's it hard to do both at the same time. <laughs> if it didn't stop people from masturbating, then he was a big fan of punitive uh, circumcisions. And he actually wanted them to be done uh, without any anesthesia so that the you know, horrible person in his mind felt like the maximum wrath of, of, you know, of uh, God. So, um, yeah, cereal didn't used to be uh, a happy thing, to put, it, to put it bluntly. So now, but how might he have also been Jack the Ripper? Yeah, I want to be careful here, uh, especially uh-huh. for, for legal reasons. Yeah. Uh, I'm not claiming he was Jack the Ripper. I get that. But uh, he, did, he did hate prostitutes. He, uh, he did travel to London around, <laughs> that, around that time to study surgery. And there's, an, there's evidence that uh, the killer, who remains unknown, um, was a foreigner possibly an American, and also was a surgeon because some of the organs were removed. So I do say in the book, somebody ought to look into it. Um, I'm not that type of uh, invest- investigator. Uh, maybe someday I'll do that. But you know what? Look, it's still unsolved. It's worth looking into. I think uh, I think uh, I should probably stop talking here. But, you know, he, he, uh, he, had, he had some of the means and some of the motives. Let's say that. It's very provocative, and given that, you know, these... I can't imagine a crime that could be solved that's 150 years old that could have such major ramifications in today's world, but it might truly affect what people put on their breakfast table. Can it really still be part of a complete breakfast if this guy was was Jack the Ripper? And it's yeah, just going to make people learn about all the other stuff, which is sort sh- of bad enough in its own right. And he, look, you know, either way, he... Um he he definitely and the thing is he had good intentions he he was a doctor he the road wanted, to hell yeah he wanted people to go to heaven he was you know he he really dedicated his life to uh to in his mind helping people but in my opinion you know he uh i'm not a big fan of his methods i think he probably hurt a lot of people um we should also note that hmm. uh the kellogg's we know today um is his brother, uh, yes. Will Kellogg. So uh, just, you know, quick, quick version of it. Uh, they were brothers. They came from the, the same household and were really taught growing up that everything that's fun is evil. And John Harvey's reaction to that was, yes, it is evil. And I'm going to punish anyone who, uh, who partakes in it and dedicate my life to uh, protesting pleasure. And his brother took a little different approach and said, you know what? I didn't really have a super fun childhood. I, I'd like to give people uh, a happier childhood than I had. So he created his own breakfast cereal and uh, sued his whole lawsuit for the family name, ended up getting the family name and not only added sugar to it, 
but also the first free prizes. So quite a feud there. Let's talk about Pi and the role that Pi has played in American history. And we all talk about as American as apple pie, but I think we're talking primarily here about, um, about savory pies. Now, according to your book, a respectable scientific journal of its day attributed the bravery and daring do of the men who perpetrated the Boston Tea Party in large part to pie. And they weren't kidding. Yeah, the stuff you find in old medical journals. Yeah, I bet. Um, yeah, this was really surprising to me. And it's, it was hard to, uh, in, in reading some of these sources, some of the time I didn't realize what was satire. <laughs> you know, it was hard to, to, to re- like, hey, is this really sounds like satire. Yeah. Uh, this wasn't satire. Um, you know, pie was hugely important in the colonies. It was uh, really eaten a lot for a lot of people. It was eaten as breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and, and midnight snack. And it was really a symbol, um, you know, a, a symbol of America to a lot of people. Um, you know, it, it was this excessive indulgence, and it was hearty. Um, and it, it really, to these people, it, it, uh, it, it was sort of like the monster energy drink of uh, colonial times. The original superfood. Yeah, except uh, it was endorsed, you know, by doctors. And part of the reason they they liked it, they didn't claim it was healthy. Um, They claimed it represented the rough, indulgent American spirit. And so one of the one of the ways they describe it uh, in praise, praisingly is um, uh, in in uh, indigestion, they say that that pie promotes indigestion, which toughens a man up. It was that attitude of it toughened our soldiers up because they're not they're not eating you know they're not surviving on dainty tea and tea cakes right. It's this this excessive you know rough pie uh, that gives them heartburn and apparently gave them courage and and you know a lot of people argued that. Uh, much of the success of early America was was due to pie. Yeah, real men have acid reflux. I I I, I don't. I've never looked into the origin of the term beef eater, but that's kind of got to be the same thing, right? The Queen's got the best soldiers. They eat beef. Yeah, I mean, you know, we talked earlier about you know peacocking testosterone. I mean, yeah. pie is kind of a weird choice for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there was this whole back and forth. Um, you know, so Americans looked at pie as their pride and joy. They, you know, that's what they ate for breakfast. It was hearty. It gave them indigestion. Uh, and meanwhile, the British were writing about pie as a social curse in America. Um, really the way, uh, some people today might write about alcohol or pornography. They blamed it as a social sin. That was the, the, the cause of all of America's problems. And, and part of that is because British pies and American pies were very different. So we still see this today. British pies tend to be more savory uh, than sweet. Um, you know, apple pie is technically not American. You know, I mean, if you look up, we can find recipes from 1300s Europe uh, for apple pie, but Americans made it bigger as we do with most things. We made it bigger, we made it sweeter. We made it primarily fruit-based rather than savory. So there was this whole divide. Now let's talk about some of these other pies. Now, uh, I'm not sure everybody listening off the top of their head will remember or know what a lamprey 
is we're kind of thinking of a, like a, a small sea monster, an eel with teeth. Is that about? Is that about right? Yeah, it's the stuff of nightmares. It's yeah, uh, yeah. Picture an eel, but they've got like this circular mouth that's both <laughs> like a sucker, but filled with teeth, kind of like that, uh, kind of like the Sarlacc pit in Star Wars, <laughs> right? Which maybe more people are familiar with. Um, again, not something that you probably look at and say, man, I would like to eat that. But yeah, lamprey pies, uh, pies were, were a thing uh, in Europe. So right. And, and as any housewife could tell you the proper way to make a lamprey pie, wash the slime off, then mix their blood with cinnamon. Yeah, you want to wash off the slime before you mix their blood with, with the cinnamon. And uh, likewise, no pigeon pie is complete without lamb testicles. Have you given any thought to why tastes tastes don't seem like they should evolve all that quickly? You know, the basic rudiments of why do we like why do we like fatty things? Because we were trying to store calories, and that used to be a really hard thing to do. I remember reading at some point, I don't know if it was in Versailles or if it was sometime in the 20th century, a bunch of rich people had their chef recreate a Roman feast to the best of the chef's ability, and they were they thought all of the food was awful. They expected to like it, and they found it all inedible. I don't know if in the research of this book you actually made and ate a lamprey pie, but I don't know that you would need to to know that you probably don't care for the taste or texture of lamprey blood mixed with cinnamon. Did you do any research? And why why do our tastes evolve so much? Isn't a steak a steak a steak? A mashed potatoes is mashed potatoes? Yeah, you know, there's a, so there's a few reasons. First of all, I did not eat a, a lamprey pie. I'm I'm not uh, I'm not too curious about that. I'm gonna bet that that I wouldn't like it. Um, yeah. I also I also happen to be vegan, so it's not gonna happen. That's tough. Yeah. Um, Bear, bear. A lot of people talk about bear fat in the book. Yeah, really praise bear fat, like liquid, liquefied bear fat. Just drinking it, and you know, I would like to give that a try uh, one of these days. But um, back to your question, I think there's two answers. One has to do, you know, sort of with the starvation thing, not quite starvation, but desperation. So you know, early pies um, were not. Uh, again, they weren't. They weren't an elaborate dessert. Um, and the crusts uh, weren't actually eaten. Early crusts, it was just a way to hold all of the innards together so you could bake them. Um, so really sort of an early form of aluminum foil. It, it uh, just held everything together so you could bake it and then you would throw it out. Um, and pie was, they were really just concoctions of whatever you had. So I, I think that's the reason for uh you know, throwing all these uh, things in there a lot of times is you didn't have, um, you weren't going to throw ingredients out. And if you, you know, it's peasant food, you weren't going to throw ingredients out. So you might as well put it all together in the pie. In fact, the phrase uh, humble pie comes from the term humble, uh, which refers to the, uh, the inner waste parts of animals. Um, so a lot of times the Lord's pies, like they would probably be, you know, the Lord's might be eating, uh, like a venison pie, right? Something that today would still appeal to a lot of people. Uh, but then the cooks themselves or the, you know, the people who are lower on the totem pole, they would just sort of throw all the, you know, all the guts and, and testicles and everything else in, into what, the, what they would refer to as an humble pie and eat that, you know, sort of out of 
that was within their means, right? They weren't going to throw anything away. Your other question, another great question about taste changing, uh, particularly, I think you mentioned Roman times, was it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, food isn't always about taste. Sadly, food a lot of times is about power and showing off. And, you know, certainly that's true today, if you've ever been on Instagram. But, you know, back in the day, a lot of these feasts, um, it was less important in some cases that the food tasted great. It was more important that it showed off your power and, hey, you're at my feast. I'm richer than you. I control you. So one of the ways to do that was to just pack spices. Spices were expensive, right? To say, hey, I'm going to give you an oyster with all these spices you could never afford and uh, you could you could never even heard of, but it, it's probably gonna taste bad, but hey, it's impressive. Um, and you know, we were still figuring things out. There wasn't, you know, a whole lot of communication between cooks and, and uh, you know, the, the people who were eating. There certainly weren't restaurant reviews like we have today, but yeah, there's, uh, you know, I, I talk about in the book about someone adding sugar to oysters because sugar was expensive and that was something only a rich person could do. And uh, I don't know, I've, I've had a lot of oysters in my life. There's, there's a lot of ways to make an oyster good. I don't, I don't think adding sugar to it works. So it was really more about power and impressing people. Right. It's the equivalent of um, gaudy yet tasteless clothing or, or cars or once again, if you've ever been on Instagram. Yeah, or even gaudy food. I mean, people today, yep. you know, certainly add things, you know, in, on one case, it might be a garnishment or, you know, in another, it's just sort of needless uh, ingredients or, you know, we still have, look, we still have things like gold, you know, gold foil being added to foods and drinks and, you know, celebrity endorsements. So, you know, we haven't changed all that much. A couple of quick other things I wanted to touch on um you say at one point, I just, I, I just can never get used to how brutal the world was. We think we live in a brutal world nowadays. It pales in, we are, we are, we're, a, we're all a bunch of snowflakes compared to the world of a couple of centuries ago. The penalty at one point in Europe, if you're a, a peasant, for failing to plant potatoes was having your ears chopped off. Yeah, um, that was a threat um that people were also beaten um i can't confirm whether or not it actually happened but certainly mm. that that was the plan from you know sort of the aristocrats at the time um you know i talked earlier about how people were afraid to eat potatoes they were afraid to eat them and a lot of cultures only really ate potatoes when uh they were forced with famine when other crops failed and potatoes were really all people had left but they were still so afraid to eat them. Um, you know, in, in some areas, um, they sort of did PR campaigns where they, uh, they showed rich people eating potatoes, right? Or, or wearing even, even wearing like potato flowers in their lapel. Um, one guy paid armed guards to surround his uh, potato crops, which made people think like, oh, wow, those are, those are worth something, right? But yeah, in in, uh, in other parts of the world, um, some people were were threatened with violence, and you know probably you know a lot of people saw that fate if they refused to embrace them. Um, if you think about 
what we're trying to do today to get uh, people to take vaccines, you know, that's uh, a, a pretty different thing. But uh, hey, fast forward and uh, we eat a lot of potatoes because of it. I was surprised, you know, secret history of food seems, uh, I, I don't know that kids would be interested in reading it, but it seems like on its face a fairly family-friendly topic. And I was, I was, I noted just how risque talking about food got um, very, very often. The last thing I want to ask you about, if you could tell everyone a little bit about ancient Greek bread sex toys and perhaps the related vagina imprinted bread that would become somewhat common later on in England. Yeah. So, so, you know, food is a raw material, right? Mm, um, mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's something we eat, but yeah. you know, man, the it's chapter, also an object. The chapter on corn, I get into, you know, how corn is in everything. It's in gasoline and ceiling tiles. It's in the paper. I'm pretty sure that my book is printed on. It's, it's a raw material. And, you know, we have too much of something and we need to fit. It's cheaper than other materials, right, in some cases. And certainly uh, back in those days, they didn't have, uh, you know, plastics and all those injection moldings, you know, to... Uh, you know, and, and latex to make uh, to make toys. Um, so yeah, there is a, there's a, a term for something that translates to loaf of bread dildo, which was uh, you know, look out, out of necessity. If if one were to uh, to want to create an object of a certain shape, and the absence of modern technology, baking it into that shape um, might have uh, obviously it was. It, it, it's something you had on hand. Um, and by the same means, if you needed, which you probably did, if you needed some sort of lubricant to help it uh, function, yep. olive oil was a popular lubricant. Yes. Now, when you said you need it, I wasn't sure in, in which sense of the word need you meant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm not going to go there. Um, but it's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, food... Uh, you know, I also get into the rich history of aphrodisiacs, um, but more than an aphrodisiac, yeah, it, it, food has been used uh, certainly as sex toys. Well, this is really, really fascinating stuff. And as I say, I, I believe this is just the tip of the iceberg. It's a, a pretty astounding wealth of information. Um, people who are interested in food will, of course, enjoy reading this book. But I think just people who like learning fun things are bound to like this, but it's chock full. Every page bursts with, uh, with, with stuff that will make you think about all of the things that we eat and um, the things that we used to eat. So thank you for your time and thank you for your book. It's called The Secret History of Food, Strange but True Stories About the Origins of Everything We Eat. Matt Siegel, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Great being here.